we continue in our study on the believer's armor. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 as we continue on. In his small piece, I've quoted from it before, but The Root of the Righteous by A.W. Tozier, he has a chapter in it entitled, We Stand in Christ's Triumph. And it is a challenging little chapter. Let me read it, or a portion of it. Among evangelicals, it is commonplace to say that the superiority of Christianity to every other religion lies in the fact that in Christianity a person is present, active, filling, upholding, and supporting all. That person, of course, is Jesus Christ. That is what we say and say truthfully. But my own experience has shown how difficult it is to make this belief a practical force in my life. And a little observation reveals that my fellow evangelicals, for the most part, are not doing much better. This mighty world-beating truth gets lost under a multitude of lesser truths and is allowed to lie forgotten while we struggle mostly unsuccessfully with the world, the flesh, and the devil. The unique thing about the early Christians was their radiant relation to a person. The Lord, they called him tenderly, and when they used that term, they gave it its own New Testament meaning. It meant Jesus Christ, who a short while before had been among them, but was now gone into the heavens as their high priest and advocate. It was this engrossment with a victorious person that gave verve and vibrancy to their lives and conviction to their testimony. They bore witness joyously to the one who had lived as a true man among men. Their testimony was not weakened by the pale cast of metaphysical thought. They knew that Jesus was very man and very God, and he had died, had been raised from the dead, and had ascended into heaven. They saw that. And because of that, they accepted literally his claim to be invested with authority over everything in heaven in earth and in hell. How it could be, they never stopped to inquire. They simply trusted him absolutely and left the details to their triumphant Lord. Today, we hold the same theological views, but our emphasis is not the same. The meek and lowly Jesus has displaced the high and holy Jesus in the minds of millions. The vibrant note of triumph is missing in our witness. A sad, weeping Jesus offers us quiet sympathy in our griefs and temptations, but he appears today to be as helpless as we are when the pressure is on. His pale, feminine face looks at us from the holy picture of the Catholic and Easter card of the Protestant. We give him our sympathy, but scarcely our confidence. The helpless Christ of the crucifix and the vacuous countenance Christ that looks out in sweet innocence from the walls of our evangelical homes is all one and the same. The Catholics rescue him by bringing a queen of heaven, Mary, to his aid. But we Protestants have no helper, so we sing pop choruses to cheer our drooping spirits, and we hold panel discussions in the plaintive hope that someone will come up with the answer to our scarce-spoken complaint. Well, we already have the answer if we but had the faith and wisdom to turn to it. The answer is Christ victorious over all. He lives forever above the reach of his foes. He has but to speak, and it is done. We 
need to trust Him because all He needs to do is but command and heaven and earth obey Him. Within the broad framework of His far-looking plans, He tolerates for the time the wild outlawry of a fallen world, but He holds the earth in His hand, and He can call the nation to judgment whenever He wills. Yet, He goes on to say, we Christian pilgrims, yes, we are better off than the sad church can see. We stand in Christ's triumph. Because He lives, we also live. Thanks be to God which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Do you believe that? You see, the early church never stopped to think, I wonder if it's real. They never pondered, do you think has Christ power over this world? Do you think he can defeat Satan? No, no. They had seen him. They had watched him. He had risen before their very eyes, ascended to heaven. They knew power, and they knew what was available to them. So we fear nothing. We ought to obey God rather than man. And they would march against the gates of hell for the cause of Christ. We've lost that today, haven't we? Well, we ought not to have. Paul reminds us in Ephesians and says, Did you know that that power is available to you? That same resurrection power. And that's how he does at the end. As we come now in our study and we come to the last two elements of the believer's armor. In a moment we're going to talk about that and I'm going to bring out our soldiers. But even before we do, I want you to look in Ephesians chapter 6 and where he says that in chapter 6 verse 10, these words. Finally, you're asked to what remains? Bringing it all together. Summarizing now the totality of everything we've been writing you. He says, let yourself be strengthened in the Lord. And in the strength of His might, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes, the wiles of the devil, the methods. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done all, done everything, to stand firm. And you and I are told that we are in a spiritual battle. And for you and I to prepare for this battle, you will need spiritual strength. Spiritual strength that is based then on this command from the Lord that says, My brethren, let yourself be strengthened. You do not have to muster it up. God will strengthen you through the power, the same power, Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, that raised Christ from the dead, you can now have available to you and me every day of our lives. What you and I need to do then is to accept the truths that have been taught throughout Ephesians, put in the form now of a panoply, an entire array of believers' armor. Let's bring our soldiers out and ask them to come, and they're going to demonstrate. We have two of them, and we're going to have one will actually serve as an armor bearer and a soldier. And it's good to have them back, right? Let's give them a hand for being here. I'll actually put you gentlemen down below here, right in the aisles. All right. As you look at these soldiers, the first thing that we are told in the Scripture that a soldier needs to do, and Paul uses this metaphor, this picture then of a soldier because that's what life is like. He says in verse 14, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. The first thing a soldier would do then is he would pull this tunic that would go down to his ankles. 
But as he stands here, as we said, the Roman soldier actually wore a gown that would be a tunic down to his ankles. But then, as he would get ready to engage in combat, what he would have to do is blouse it or cinch it up and gather it up. And they would pull it up to knee length around this girdle or this belt that they are wearing in front of them. That was then a blouse and it said then now that we are unencumbered. We are ready for combat. We are ready now to engage. I am committed. And that's what the idea is. I am committed to what? Let your loins be girded with truth. The truth of what we have contained in the the body of truth, the aletheia, the entire truth of God's Word, in the person of truth, causing you and I to be people of truth, truthfulness, integrity, and character based on that of God. But then we'd put on something and it says, and we'll go down below then, and you'll see as we look at Pastor Aaron then, we wear a breastplate, having on, having our loins girded with the truth, having on a breastplate of righteousness. And this breastplate, as you look at it, and we talked about the different elements of the armor, but the breastplate covered what? The heart and the splankna. I knew somebody would remember that word. What is it? Oh, come on. Splunkna. And the splunkna was your what? Oh, I heard it. That's literally what it was, the abdominal area. Way down deep in the, we'll use that awful word, the gut. Okay. But it was, it's the area where the feelings were. This covered the what? The heart and the Bow. The heart, out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. The heart of man, okay? The heart is deceitful. They thought the heart then was where the true person, the spirit resided. My thinking, my being, my will, and my feelings. If any man see his neighbor in need and shutteth up his bowels, splonk noia of compassion, how dwelleth the love of God in him? So when you see and you feel, and so our thoughts, our emotions, our passions are to be protected with righteousness, holiness, and in an evil world, and in a vile world, and in a pornographic world, in a visually stimulating world, our passions, our minds, we ought to think holy. We are to be different. And when Satan brings those things to tempt us, you and I are to be what? Holy. So we are committed to God's Word and to Christ. We are holy in what we think and feel. He goes on and says, and having on. Thirdly then, having on. Let me read it to you. An interesting passage your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, let's see if we can have one of them slip their feet in the air. Nah, we will. They will glen. <laughs> All right. The sandals they are wearing are not like the sandals that are talked about in this passage. As we demonstrated Roman soldiers, and they would have on a sandal that would be strapped up, the reasons for the strappings that would come up their legs was to anchor this heavy boot Type sandal that they wore called a caligae. This heavy sandal that they wore was at least three quarters of an inch thick sole. And through it, 
protruded an inch to an inch and a half long spike, which gave the Roman soldier, what did we say, a footing, almost like a lengthy cleat. It offered protection, but more than that, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And the key word there is the preparation. The word preparation, we said, only occurs what? How often? One time in the New Testament, and here it is. Therefore, it makes it a very difficult word to translate. But it's the word that means in a verb form in Titus 3.1, make ready. You build a building, you get what? You get ready the foundation. You lay a foundation, a footing. And so a Roman soldier is to have his footing in a battle because of these great shoes called the collegae. For the Christian, your footing that you have on is the what? The good news that you are at, what is it? Peace with whom? God. My God and I are one. I am in the commonwealth. I am in the body. And nothing, nothing can move us from that. And so Paul would write in Romans to the Romans as well. Neither height nor depth nor, and he would go through, any creature, nothing can separate us from the what? Love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we are more than... And the word conqueror is the Greek word huper, hyper, spelled H-Y-P-E-R-N-I-K-E. We get our word what? Nike. Okay? This isn't a promotion for shoes. All right? We are hyper-Nike. We are super shoes. No, the idea is super conquerors. The word Nike means conqueror. You are a super conqueror through what? Christ Jesus. Nothing can move you. That's what you are anchored. Now, here we go. As we talked about last time, you have on, always, you have on these loins girded, committed to truth. You have on always a breastplate of righteousness. You have on always these shoes. You never take these things off. But then as the day goes on, the week goes on, different occasions in the midst of battle, it seems that though I am a believer, though I know the Lord, though I am His, the battle just is relentless, or there are times when the attack gets worse. Do you ever feel that way? And so a soldier would have an armor-bearer, and what the armor-bearer would do for a soldier is he would hand him elements to go into combat. And so he would hand the soldier the first of these. That would be what? The what? The shield. And it says here, as we read, the shield of faith. Notice, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. We talked about this thurion, Latin word scutum, this heavy shield, 
four feet by two and a half feet, ganged together. Soldiers could hide behind it, and sometimes they were even reinforced by other soldiers, which is also very critical to you if you think about that metaphor. Okay? Sometimes to protect your blind side, you're going to need some what? Backup. Other believers to come alongside and reinforce. But more importantly than that, for each soldier, he would be carrying a shield like this. And as Satan fires these missiles, and they would fire him in combat from all angles, he would have a shield that would be soaked in water, a heavy shield, metal on the back, wood, leather then. And when the arrows hit it, Satan's missiles of doubt you can actually extinguish them, okay? Not just blunt them and not deflect them. You actually put them out. They are rendered useless, inoperative, of no effect in your life, right? He goes on to say in Ephesians, and taking up not only the shield of faith that you can extinguish, but take the helmet of salvation. Now notice the illustration here. And what a soldier would do is he would be handed this and he would take that as well and he would put on the helmet. Now what we have here is a Roman helmet, but until about a hundred years before Christ, most of the helmets would be just this top portion. And A Roman soldier's helmet was quite a piece. The piece on top was usually made of bronze. And they fit that over an iron skull cap. And under the iron skull cap, they would pad that then with either leather or they would pad that with cloth. Then they would put an iron skull cap and then slip the ornamental piece. It was like for those of us who were in the military, you had a a liner underneath your metal helmet. Well, they would have a bronze decorative piece like this over a heavy iron. And then over the years, they added some pieces on the side to protect and along the back. But the helmet itself, the real element, is this piece right here in the middle. Now, for poorer soldiers, they had different kinds of helmets as well. Sometimes they were just the leather hat. And like the breastplate that could be made by shaving hooves, they would shave hooves or horn, and they would then stitch that to a helmet as well. But they made a helmet. It would be the Romans who would then perfect this type of a helmet because it was iron. It was actually bronze clad over iron. And as we talk then of that type of a helmet, the purpose of it then was to offer protection from arrows, but mainly then from a sword. He says, though, the helmet of salvation. What's he talking about? Let's talk then just a little bit about what is meant by this helmet of salvation. What does Paul mean by salvation? And you and I, when we talk of salvation, we can refer to it either as that that moment when I got saved, initial salvation, saved from the penalty of sin, or as I'm growing in the Lord, I am growing holier, sanctification more conformed to the image of Christ, where we are being constantly then saved from the power of sin. But ultimately, when the Lord takes us home, it'll be glorification. We'll be saved from the presence of sin entirely. So what element is he speaking about? All of it. All of it. What he's talking about here is as Satan's broadsword of doubt and discouragement is swung to destroy you, don't quit. 
Let me read what a couple of commentators have said, even better than I could explain it. Real quickly, I will read this. In his commentary on Ephesians, a fairly new piece by Dr. Harold Honer, who recently went home to be with the Lord, but he wrote a massive tome on Ephesians, just published, and perhaps now the best single commentary on Ephesians that we can purchase in the English language. Honer writes these words on page 850. The prophet in Isaiah 59, 17 speaks of present salvation from wickedness. And in this context, Paul is referring primarily to a present-day experiential salvation from the attacks of the wicked one, as opposed to salvation from a future judgment envisioned in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. It does not refer, then, this salvation in our passage that we're talking about tonight to the objective sense, but a conscious possession of it in the midst of the onslaughts of the evil one. With his head protected, the soldier feels safe in the middle of battle. Likewise, believers' possession of salvation gives them confidence of safeness during the assaults of the devil. In other words, the helmet of salvation for you and me is a consciousness that you and I are to take and grab hold of and embrace and cling to and consciously possess and use it. I'm saved. I'm a child of God. I will not doubt that. I will not let Satan's broadsword destroy that truth in my life. I have been saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. That's what he's talking about. Not ever, whenever the attacks come, not ever to doubt that. Does it make sense? In his commentary, Peter O'Brien says, Here Paul's language is once again drawn from Isaiah 59, where Yahweh, the victorious warrior, wears the helmet of salvation as he saves his people and judges their enemies. Now, according to Ephesians, he gives this helmet to believers for their protection. This helmet is salvation itself. The genitive one of apposition, which means the helmet, comma, which is salvation. And the believers are to urge to lay hold of it as they engage in the spiritual warfare. He writes, This present aspect of salvation is emphatically stressed. God has rescued us from death, wrath, bondage, transferred us to a new dominion where Christ rules. This new position of power and authority with Christ to which we have been raised is greater than that possessed by their mighty supernatural enemies. As you and I appropriate this salvation more fully and live in the light of our status in Christ, we have every reason to be confident of the outcome of the battle, a helmet which is salvation. The last element that he talks about here then is we go on though as he says, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let's talk for a moment then about the sword of the Spirit. Now, a sword, this long one, and actually this long sword is just a a shorter version of what a Roman soldier might have carried if he was to be a sword swinger. Okay? It was actually longer than this. It was called a romphia. Okay? There are two kinds of swords the swords soldiers carried, Greek language, a romphia. And it would be about three to four and a half feet in length. It would have a handle that you could grip with two hands, and it's relatively heavy. What do you think that one weighs? 
The sword we're talking about weighed anywhere from 8 to 11 pounds, okay? And when you swung it through the air, it actually sounded like that. It sounded like a rumphia. I love the sound of that word, don't you? <laughs> rumphia. Say it with me. Rumphia. Oh, you do it so well. <laughs> See, when you swing a rumphia and you take a man who's really tall, vroom, you make two men half as tall, okay? <laughs> That's what a romphia did, and that was the purpose of it. It just, vroom. and it was this huge weapon that was just massive. Ah, that's not the sword in this passage of Scripture. And take the sword of the Spirit. The sword that's spoken of, and what we've demonstrated here is a Roman sword called a gladius. About that long. But I want you to see the sword that's spoken of here and pull it out. It's not that long. It's actually quite short. It's called a machaira. The machaira would be anywhere from a foot to 18 inches. You and I would think of it as a bowie knife length, more like a dagger, sharpened on two sides. How close do you suppose you have to be as a soldier to engage that? A little too close, in my opinion, he says. But they would, because you and I are wrestling against the enemy. And the term for wrestle is hand-to-hand combat. And what you fought with in hand-to-hand combat was a machaira, this short little sword. By the way, Aaron, how, how nimble can you be with that thing? That's a pretty awkward. That thing's... <laughs> the point is, you take a romphia and you get swinging that thing like this, okay? And when the romphia is... <laughs> I'm preaching here, guys. Okay. <laughs> in, the midst of a, in the midst of a hand-to-hand combat, though, you want something very, very agile. And you want something that you can get right in. Well, let's put it this way. Great maneuverability. The sword of the Spirit. That of the Spirit can be what we call a genitive idea. I mean, it comes from or it belongs to... Or it can be the idea of a spiritual sword. And by the way, Greek language allows for either one. And I believe they're both proper here. The sword which is of the Holy Spirit, it's a spiritual sword, which is the what? The sword of the Spirit, which is the? What's the Word of God, folks? The Bible. Well, let's talk about that for a moment. In this passage of Scripture, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God... When you translate the expression Word of God from the original Greek, normally when we talk about the Bible, the word for the Word of God is the word logos. L-O-G-O-S. Logos. Okay? And when you come across the term logos, it means the Word of God, the totality. This is the Word of God. Okay? The Word. And we think then Scripture in its totality. There is another Greek word that's used on occasions throughout the New Testament. Instead of logos, it's the Greek word chrema, spelled R-H-E-M-A. Pronounced what? Chrema. 
We quite we almost have to trill it off our tongues, but it comes out Krema. The Rhema. And the Rhema is the spoken word. It can be written word, but when it's referring to the written word, it's talking about what you and I would call snippets or small written word. And I don't mean ten point font, okay? I'm talking about short, or you would call it verses. And take the sword of the Spirit, which are the what? Verses of Scripture. So in the midst of combat, when Satan is saying and causing you to doubt, what weapon, what is the only offensive weapon you have to drive him away? Memorized Scripture. Verses of Scripture. Okay? What did Jesus do in Matthew 4 when he was tempted? Whenever Satan would say something, Jesus would quote what? Scripture. As a matter of fact, the psalmist would write, Thy word have I hid or treasure in my heart that I might not. Why? Because when Satan comes at me and causes me to be tempted or doubt, what should I do to repel him? Quote Scripture. Or draw from Scripture. And bring back scriptural truth. Let yourself be strengthened. How? God will do the work. And I'll anchor myself to memorize Scripture. For many of us, the last time we did lengthy Scripture memorizing is when we were what? Children. And yet we're the ones under attack. Do you know what I'm saying? You and I need to go back and be kids again. In other words, write some of those verses and put them back on those sticky notes on a computer or magnetize them back on a refrigerator or slap them on a dashboard, write them on the back of a hand, somehow committing them to memory. We're under attack, folks, and I need the Word of God hidden in my heart. Amen? And then when we do, we are hyper-Nike, super shoes for the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's going to go on then and tell us, as you do this, that our weapon is the specific principles of Scripture that deal with specific temptations. In just this case, we memorize it, we apply it, and we are victorious for the Lord. We can have victory. Amen? It's good to be a soldier, to be strengthened for the Lord. 